Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. Name might be changed in the future, who knows? Anyway, with me today is Dusty. Is that correct? Do you go by Dusty? Yeah, I'm Dusty. And Dusty, tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, well, I live and work in Portland, Oregon. Um, I work at Nike doing corporate videos uh, um, about products. And um, I've been an avid filmmaker for more than 10 years now um, in the Portland area. Um, and I'm really into sci-fi. So what, uh, what cameras do you shoot on today? Um, I do a lot of five D Mark three stuff. That's probably my, um, sorry about that door. Um, that's probably my, that's probably 60% of what I do. And then I do a fair amount of, um, FS 700, uh, um, for when we need to do product on model and they need to be in action. Um, and then, uh, recently we've kind of gotten into playing around with the black magic 4k camera and occasionally there'll be a a need to do red, but red is kind of its own ball game. So I try to steer clear of that when I can. Yeah. I haven't had to uh, do a red project in about four years. It used to be pretty much a requirement for every job. Like, uh, the, the uh, people paying the bills would always request red, and now it doesn't seem like that's a thing anymore. Yeah. All right. So jumping straight into the news, um, we have some bullet point news items here. This is uh, our first time together on a podcast, so we'll see how this goes. Uh, starting out, we've got uh, com reports that Canon's Senior Managing Director of Image Communications Business Division confirms the existence of a high-megapixel DSLR. Uh, Canon's also expressed interest in possibly releasing a new line of high-megapixel EF lenses to go along with this 50-megapixel sensor. What do you think about that size of sensor for DSLRs? Well, I mean, I I think that that size of a sensor it was inevitable. I think there's still the megapixel race that's happening. But really, the, the drive for that is, I think, science and product photography, stuff that's going to go into a level of print where they want so much flexibility to be able to zoom in and modify intense detail. But in terms of video, I think it's not even... It'll actually be a hindrance more than a benefit. I feel like that's a uh, that's way too many pixels. For, well, you have Nikon right now offering, uh, I believe, forty six megapixels in the D eight hundred and the D eight ten series, and even those, uh, a lot of people are saying in the video format, it's doing a lot of scaling, and so you're still getting a lot of fine grain because of that high megapixel count. Um, for product placement and, and product photography, wouldn't you want to go maybe medium format with like 60 and 70 megapixel cameras? Well, I think like this becomes a gray area, right? Like 50 megapixels is sort of what you were saying that is the rumor. I mean, that's such a, a gray, like minuscule difference between medium format. I guess like that's the, the size of the sensor is probably the difference as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I do feel like you'd want to – it gets confusing there. Like why not just go medium format? I guess the difference would be price because medium format right now is still like in the $30,000 range. Although here Pantex came out with a cheaper medium format. Yeah, I believe format. that's uh, 13000 starting for the new Pantex. Right. But uh, yeah, is, that is still pretty yeah. spendy. 
Yeah, it's still extremely spendy. I wrote down some quick just um, <clears throat> megapixel numbers so people could get an idea of megapixels versus resolution that we normally use So to anchor some stuff. So like 720 um, video is one megapixel. 1080 video is two megapixels. 4K video is 8.8 megapixels, and 8K video is 33 megapixels. So even at 4K, which is something that we're all like excited to get a hold of, that's still far smaller than you know the megapixels that we're getting out of the 5D Mark III, which is 22 megapixels. Well, so I think got, when oh, go yeah, ahead. you go for it. Uh, you've got cameras like the Sony A7S with uh, roughly a 9 megapixel sensor, so almost no scaling for 4K footage right out of the sensor. And having that large of photocell sites gives you so much more low light capability than you get even out of something like the 5D Mark III, which I think that's pushing, a, a, what, 24 megapixels? Uh, I think 5D Mark III is 22. 22? Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think that that will be I, – I hope we do move away from the megapixel race and into more of the actual things that matter, like – um, light sensitivity, dynamic range. Those are the things that actually make an image better. Like being able to have, um, details. So, um, to be able to capture detail that's greater than what the human eye can even perceive seems, um, insignificant or like it looks good on paper, but in, in function, it's not terribly exciting. Well, and I've been working on um, a 4K uh, computer panel that's, uh, well, laptop panel that's 16 or about 16 inches. And at 4K, 16 inches, the pixels are so small that, you know, if you were to actually scale it to just 100% of whatever the text size is, I have to get my glasses on and a magnifying glass yeah. to freaking read what's on the screen. And so that becomes an issue. Also, right. uh, Canon offering up a new line of EF lenses. Um, think about something like the uh, Canon 35mm f1.4. Uh, that's been rumored to get a replacement for the last five years, and we haven't seen one. Uh, the EOS M lenses, they've only managed to release three in the last three years. Uh, how long would we end up waiting for high megas megapixel EF lenses to be released to go along with this camera? Well, I think that um, if they actually did release this camera, they would actually have to release a new line of lenses all at the same time. It would have to be a big thing. Cause I, I, I mean, I think their lenses are sharp for what they are now, but they, I, they're not the sharpest on the market. Like, you're although there's against Nikon sharpness that you pay a premium for Nikon lenses, but or Zeiss is yeah. really sharp. Ingenue, um, their CineLine lenses, I don't know if you've used those. Those are considerably sharper than their still lenses. And they're nice for the price, but they are very expensive. I've been eyeballing them because uh, they've had some sales lately where you could get them for uh, the whole kit for $9,000. And They're nice. They're heavy, but they're nice. That seems like a really affordable uh, price range, not for you know regular use, but for Cine lenses. I mean, it used to be a kit was in the twenty or $30,000 range. Uh, you know, $9,000 is almost like question well, mark think rent versus buy. 20 or $30,000 range wasn't a kit. It was like a single lens. Yeah. I mean, up until this last, I mean, Canon is doing some crazy stuff in the, in that high level market where they are like competing on a price. It's just, it feels really crazy if you're looking at it from the stills world, but yeah, cine lenses have traditionally been, you know, like a good zoom, a medium good zoom would cost you 50, 60 grand. Like the really nice ingenues that are 2.8 all the way through and they're like 20 to 280. Those things are close to 100 grand. 
Yeah, but they're they're also almost a hundred pounds, and you have to have like a dolly to put them on. You wouldn't handheld those things. Yeah, thankfully, I've never had to work in a production where I had something like that to break. <laughs> oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm not really sure on on the, the megapixel count. Are there really that many photographers? Uh, you know, scrounging and trying to get a hold of 50 megapixel. And, it, you know, with stuff like Nikon uh, D800 and D810 uh, on the market, couldn't you just go Nikon as opposed to worrying about waiting for Canon to move in? I don't know. That's a really good question. I, you know, I have limited experience on photo shoots, but I have had some because of my job. And I feel like Canon has really won the hearts and minds of photographers in terms of their brand equity. And so they might actually just wait. Uh, because like on the photo shoots I've been on, everything's all Canon unless they're medium format. Um, Uh, And it's a different mindset. You know, they shoot like in video world, you you shoot pretty close to wide open, if not wide open all the time. And in like the photo shoots I've been on, they're shooting F-16. They're shooting way closed down because they want they want as much tack sharpness as they can in detail. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think some of it might just be, you know, like why you shoot 4Ks for the flexibility um, so it would give you more flexibility, uh, you know, if you're shooting like a group shot of many products, potentially it would give you the flexibility to like crop in and not lose the, the sharpness. Yeah. And you can get the I, edge detail and stuff too. If you're trying to, uh, rotoscope something out for like a cover sheet or something like that. Yeah. That's, that's what I assume would be the draw, but at the same time, I mean, people print out 22 megapixel stuff and everyone's super happy with it. So I don't know. Well, I've <laughs> it been, does feel like overkill. I've been working with the uh, uh, GH4 quite a bit and that's only 16 megapixel. And unless I was going to, you know, poster size prints, 16 pegel, uh, megapixel is even a little bit overkill. You know what? I've seen poster size prints from GH4 video, which would only be eight megapixels. Yeah. And it was tack sharp. It, you, you wouldn't be able to tell that it was only an eight. Meg- I mean, maybe if you were a professional like printer, but I, it was, it was very impressive. And it was a frame of video from 4k video, man. Yeah. And it was, and it was, it was poster size. I don't know what the DPI numbers work out to on stuff like that, but uh, it's really interesting to think about, especially at, at the distances that most people are going to be even observing prints like that. You're not going to be you know, nose to the wall looking at something, you're going to be a few feet away. And at that point, it kind of resolves itself, even if it were from an eight or, you know, six megapixel shot. Yeah. And it feels like in a lot of ways, we're moving away from print, even in areas where where it should be print. Like a lot of signs are becoming video signs because it's easier to change up the content. Yep. And as that technology becomes cheaper to implement, I think a lot of this video stuff will, and a lot of this print advertising in large spaces will become video screens. Well, and I've seen the video screens where they're actually going to uh, low res images on those screens. Uh So you'll see like these hokey real estate shots with a really low quality video in the corner as, you know, words scroll by and the images Uh and stuff that they're, they're showing are, you know, maybe 610 by 434 or something like that. They're really tiny. So uh, you're not even worried about quality anymore. You're just scaling it down to like barely fit on a 1080p display screen. I've seen that go on on large screens at like our basketball games and stuff. And it's like, you guys should be professionals. You should know not to like quality control your work a little bit. I know you kind of like cringe a little bit when you see that. I've, I've seen a ton of that in the airports lately. And it's just, just drives me nuts when you see that. 
Yeah, but right. I guess most people don't notice. But anyways, yeah, oh, move on. Let's move no on. problem. Moving on to the next item on the news list here. Um, there was an announcement last year at NAB 2014 about the uh, Thomas Shogun 4K HDMI SDI recorder. Uh, it's finally starting to hit the streets now. At a price of $19.95, the Shogun looks like a pretty decent 4K recorder with XLR inputs. But uh, do you really want to spend $2,000 for an upgrade to your GH4 or your Sony A7S? I don't know. I mean, I guess that depends on, I I guess in some avenues, yes. I less, at least, especially with the a, Sony a7S, because you don't get 4K unless you get a recorder. That's true. Um, GH4, man, I think one of the benefits of the GH4 is that internal you can recording. Actually, internal recording, you can actually use the size of the products, right? Like a lot of these other cameras are small and they seem... That seems really neat, but as, as soon as you actually try to start using them, they can't be small anymore. You have to add on all these, this, you know, these extra parts. In the GH4, you can actually just slap a pretty good lens, a, you know, a micro four thirds lens, and keep it actually small um, and actually shoot 4K. I don't know. Um, I kind of feel like it's a, a um, it must record internally, or it's not viable. For a lot yeah. of options, I started out um, a while back. I was shooting heavily on the Canon C300 and the uh, C100, and I was running in a Thomas Ninja with those and capturing externally. And that's fine; it, it worked okay sometimes. But you had to remember to set up the HDMI uh, con- uh, control system. You had to make sure that you know you had your projects organized properly. Um, then I don't really edit in ProRes that much, so I ended up uh, transcoding after the fact, which was kind of obnoxious, or using DNX HD. And, you know, for the amount of, of, of data that I was ending up dealing with, it ended up became, becoming a big pain in the butt. I would prefer to record directly into the camera. Uh, the other thing to note is that the 4K uh, mode on the GH4 is pretty adequate. You don't have quite the 10-bit resolution that you would with the... Uh, uh, Shogun, but still, as long as you pay attention to your white balance and your exposure when you're shooting, you probably aren't going to need that much leeway in correcting your footage in post, are you? Um, I guess it, it really all depends on what you're shooting, yeah, what you're shooting, how when your idea enhance. I mean, if if you have tight turnarounds and you just need to shoot a bunch, and then you know you're you got to deliver in a week, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want any of that extra stuff. I'd want it to keep it as simple as possible and shoot as close to what I want the look to be um, when I deliver. And so when I go into the final coloring, it's just tweaking an already good image instead of something that's like crazy flat or. <clears throat> well, and the other thing know. is data rates, uh, 4K on the Atomus Shogun, uh, we're talking uh, two terabytes for about five hours um, worth of 4K footage versus uh, 128 gig for about five hours on the GH4. You know, I know there's a ton of compression on uh, H.264 for the 4K video coming out of the GH4, but, you know, 128 meg versus two terabytes for a lot of things, I would almost lean yeah. towards the, the lower data rates personally. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on your workflow. I feel like if you're a one-man band kind of thing, the lower data rate is going to be a lot easier on you because essentially you still have to sleep. You know, like exactly. you, 
you, yeah, the computer can't do all that stuff for you. So, um, but I feel like if it was like, if it's a personal project or it's a super high level project where you just want that flexibility, I can see like, that's kind of the reason why, to sh- why you would want to shoot raw. Cause it adds that all that level of flexibility in terms of color and, and that's completely um, true. Potential dynamic, dynamic range. And if you can add that, I guess the, I guess what, the reality is that um, you need to you need to check your budget to make sure that you actually have the resources in that project to deal with that data. And if you don't, you should you should steer clear. Well, if you have if you're shooting on something like the uh, Sony FS7 or the FS700, I don't uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think those are internal native 4K recording. It's just uh, 1080p, and then you have to use an external recorder. That is 100 percent true. Yep. Uh, so and with I've those, never... then if you're on that budget. <laughs> You know, that's you're dealing with like a six or eight thousand dollar camera. Then yeah, you probably have enough room to squeeze in a, a Shogun if someone wants you to shoot in 4K. Shogun, yeah, or the or the what? What's the other one? The, uh, yeah, the uh, Galaxy or Odyssey, yeah, something like that. It's the Odyssey 7Q. I, uh, you know, I, I think the other thing. So there's two things I in my my opinion bank on this one is um, I really effing hate HDMI as a as a cable. Oh yeah. You break them, you bend There's, them, they pull out. I, I have to basically buy those things every couple, like a batch of them every couple months. Cause I break them all the time. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you break an HDMI on sentence, your last HDMI, you're done shooting, you know, yep. <laughs> especially with this scenario where you're actually recording through the HDMI and the ports break really easy. And, um, they also slip out really easy. So if you're using this as a recording medium and it slips out during your shot, you just ruined potentially a great shot for a stupid, you know, $30 cable. Well, there is one thing with the, uh, Shogun and, and the Ninja is it will close out and contain the file if there's a dropout from the HDMI cable. So, wow, that's awesome. That part is pretty handy. I've had that happen on the uh, C100 going into the uh, Ninja, and it does make the file uh, retrievable. So, that part's good. But um, on the GH4 and the Sony A7S, those are micro HD ports. So, they're even more flimsy and yeah. more sensitive than what you'd be dealing with with a regular HDMI port. And yeah, I new know, cables to buy. Yeah, and I know you can get um, the SDI adapter for the GH4, which gives you, you know, locking connectors. But then that's another uh, two grand or like eighteen hundred bucks added to the camera cost. And yeah. So then, well, not you, only that, that's oh. actually more. So the that add-on is uh, secretly way more expensive than it looks because it, once you put that add-on on, you, you basically. You need power. Yeah. And it's a four pin power. So you got to come out to some real power source like, a, you know, an Anton Bauer or yep. V-Lock battery. That's a seven or $800 investment right there. Plus for one, it. for one battery. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you probably need to, it's actually closer to a two, $3,000 investment because you need the mounting, you need the plates, you need the cables. And that's on top of that, that whatever they call that add-on which is a weird yghi or whatever something like that i I wish i'd hire someone to name these things better (laughs) well sony's really bad with that too you know uh you have so many like they have seven in the title are they the same thing i don't know you know let's go look at the spec sheet 
always been bad with that throughout their whole product line, their highest level to their lowest level. It's like what, like with the F five and the F 55, it's like, Oh cool. This, this should be easy to remember. (laughs) Yeah. Back in the day when you were still shooting on tape and it was like the HX 100 or the HX 100 SA and all. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. um, So I guess my verdict on that is if you're in the low budget range of 4K HDMI SDI recording, uh, might not necessarily be the right thing for you. Evaluate what you're doing. The other gripe I have is that it's two menu systems to remember as well, Mm -hmm. which is a which is a total bummer. Well, and Um, they do have HDMI uh, uh, data recording, so you can actually control the start stop recording for the. Uh, ninja or the shogun once you get set up uh, it'll start recording and stop recording with the press of the button on the camera but even that you have to dig through the menus like you said and try and find out how to do that first and then hope that it stays saved on there until the next time you use it and hope that it works every time yeah and you're dealing with yet another battery system with the shogun or the ninja as an external recorder like you said you got the hdmi batteries cables mounting and all the other hardware it takes to set something like that up it kind of only seems practical to me if you're uh, working on a higher end project, you start getting down into the, you know, use your own gear type stuff. And I don't know if it's really worth it to external record. And then it becomes this gray area again. Like once you start building it up and you've spent all that money on this product, on these series of products, why didn't you just buy a more professional level camera? Because it's basically the same cost. Exactly. And, you know, uh, entry-level 4K cameras now are down in the three and $4,000 range for Blackmagic or the GH4. You know, it may not be the best Kodak in the world, but the H.264 internally is, is pretty decent. You know, it's very yeah. usable if you know what you're doing and pay attention. And five hours for two terabytes? My home server right now that manages all my footage is 24 terabytes. But uh, I just finished a, a feature-length project where I was dealing with... Um, 36 hours worth of footage you know that that would be uh pushing the extreme limit of my server alone let alone getting the data in and out of my editing bay from my server on a regular basis i only have a one gig uh, connection right now and i haven't set up fiber yet so i mean (laughs) that would be really a a tough tough deal for somebody and the server was an investment in itself those are the secret costs of the large data um, outputs, right? Because you need to be able to store the data and you need to be able to store it securely. Exactly. So like having a nice size raid, I mean, those aren't, those aren't incremental costs. Those are large clicks in what mm-hmm. you have to spend. Yeah. And then having offsite backups on top of that. I mean, I, I run raid one here, so I'm not completely uh, in danger, but I have no offsite backup. If my house burned down tomorrow, I would lose everything. And, you know, other than, you know, my dailies that I send out um, via, you know, Google Drive, <laughs> nothing would be left. And that would yeah. be that, you know. So any projects that were in the works at the time, no more. And that's that server is that's a two thousand dollar investment right there alone. And, and that's cheap. <laughs> yeah. And that's like me DIYing it myself and using, yeah. you know, uh, standard off the shelf hardware and probably not the best hard drives I've. I should have used reds instead of, you know, using some cheap Samsung drives that I got, you know, on Newegg. Uh, yeah. 
Man, well, and yeah, you what you built, just talking about it. I rem- I read your blog post about your your free NAS thing, and that that's not something everyone's going to want to do. That's super nerdy. Yeah, so. and it's a big time investment. Yeah, it, but now it's come down quite a bit. Um, if you look at the the new uh, Dobros, they're uh, they're like um, three hundred and fifty bucks for the base model with four drive slots, and so with the five terabyte drives out now. You could really fill one of those up for maybe eleven or twelve hundred bucks, maybe maybe fifteen hundred, and that's including the unit. And I know a lot of people complain that they don't use uh, regular RAID, but those units are super versatile. So you can. Have, have you seen the the, the ARC eighty fifty? Uh, no, no, I haven't. It's like a it's like a Chinese knockoff of a Pegasus, and the speeds are supposedly as good, if not better, than the Pegasus. You said the a- ARC eighty fifty. Yeah, I will be looking shortly. They're, they're Thunderbolts. Um, you can so the the let me see, let me go to. I'm a I'm in the PC camp, so unless I buy a special adapter, Thunderbolt is kind of out of my yeah. reach. They they make yeah. Uh, well, you—I mean—you'd have to buy an an Apple that or a, a Windows board that took it. Yeah, and I mean, there are is, a couple you know. of high end, but um, the Thunderbolt application for PCs was never ratified properly. So a lot of the applications for uh, Windows PCs are kind of in that gray. Like sometimes mm. they work great, sometimes they don't. If you chain too much stuff onto them, they might go sideways. Because uh, yeah. uh, there was a few uh, graphics cards enclosures that were Thunderbolt for PC that kind of hit the fan pretty fast when um, people started having huge issues with either the connector or what have you. Yeah. 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 I hope that stuff kind of clears it. I mean, I wish it was more of a a universal standard and it would really help bring the price down on this stuff. Well, speaking Uh, of a Mac user here, um, I'm looking at our our rundown here and uh, it looks like um, the new Adobe Lightroom 5.7 is now available for download and it includes an integrated utility for downloading uh, Aperture as well as iPhoto libraries into Lightroom. It looks like uh, Apple's discontinuing support for those. Uh, are you an Aperture or iPhoto user? I am not. I've actually always hated iPhoto because of the whole, like, takes my files and puts them in a library folder that it try it sort of masks from me. I like to have control of my files. And Aperture... Uh, I don't know why I never got into Aperture. I've been a, li- a Lightroom user for a long time, actually. Um, I, I used to actually just use uh, uh, Canon's native uh, DPP for a long time. And then about five or six years ago, I was on a photo shoot working with somebody, and they showed me the joys of Lightroom. And I, I think that was at three or maybe two. And um, mm-hmm. it was really amazing that you know it would auto-convert to DNG right out of the bat, and it would do things like um, you know, side by side comparison, and you had a bunch of extra controls that you didn't even have in Canon's native supported raw program for processing. Plus, you know, you have to have a Canon camera, and up until recently, the disc that came with your camera in order to use DPP. Right. Um, they just finally, like after what ten years of this junk, decided that you could download it with a serial number from their site. Because what you're going to use it on your Nikon camera? Ooh. 
No, I know I, that must, I bet someone got fired and then the guy underneath him was like, let's just offer it guys for the internet. <laughs> I know. Well, and I, I work off of a tablet on occasion and uh, all my laptops, none of them have a CD-ROM drive. So I actually had to uh-huh. like create an ISO from the disc and bring it over when I wanted to install it on something. And that's ridiculous. You know, why, why in this modern age of the internet, can't you download something and use it properly? There, there was a hack for Mac where you could download the update and, and trick it to install a full version without a previous version. Oh, really? but yeah, it was lame. Yeah. Now, uh, as a Mac user, have you ventured into any Hackintoshes? I personally haven't, but I have, I know, um, a DIT that I hire all the time. He uses, um, a Hackintosh. Um, he's actually a close friend of mine. Um, and he, he swears by it like for four or five months at a time and then doesn't, and then he's like, I'm moving back to windows for a month. And then he <laughs> goes back to the Hackintosh. Um, I think if you were going to think of it as an appliance more and like where you, you set it up. And then it's like, once you get it all going, it's like a hyper, you just, you freeze it right there. No updates, no nothing. Like yeah. it's working. Don't screw with it. Um, and I don't know. I feel, hmm, I feel some of me is excited about it because it's gotten so much easier. Supposedly with Yosemite, it's almost as easy as installing it on a regular Mac now. Um, well, then they have a lot more CPU support and motherboard ranges that are supported as well. Um, and there's still yeah. a lot of, uh, of motherboards out there that offer firewire and a few that offer uh thunderbolt support um yeah graphics card is the biggest for me i take advantage of of cuda processing in premiere and yeah. you know with uh the latest macbook pros and uh, mac towers you don't have an nvidia graphics card you have a ati graphics card so then you're missing out on a little bit of that cuda support and I know the OpenGL is starting to get there, but it's not quite there yet as far as full effect support and rendering. The other great thing in terms of having multiple video cards is you can actually stack more than you'd need, right? Like you could fill up all your PCI slots and computer or programs like Resolve will just start be able to using yep. those extra processors to throw frames at. I did learn recently, though, that up until the newest – is it? What's the newest uh, processor that Intel has? It's not Ivy Bridge. It's uh, Haswell. Or just Haswell, Haswell, e. Haswell E is the is the current generation, um, and those are in the i7 flavors, and then you have those in the uh, six-core processors for the extreme versions. So the Haswell E processor supports multi-bridge PCI slots. Yeah. So um, unless you have the Haswell E processor um, – uh, when you plug in multiple cards, it's actually all in the same bus. So you're so at a certain point, you have a diminishing um, amount of return on the on on your capability. If that makes sense. Well, the uh, buses originally were like 16x, 8x, and 4x. So if you're running um, three cards uh, against each the other, same, they all have the same pipeline. Yeah, to you the would end processor. up dividing them to to the extent. So if you just run one card, you have plenty of of speed for that card to use all the bandwidth it wants. You run two right. cards, and you are limited between the uh, uh, 4x bus and the 8x bus because it divides so, yeah. that space right. up. And then the so last one, yeah. So there's like this, there's like this sweet spot in between like the amount of cards and the amount of uh, data that pipe can hold of like, you know, being able to do multiple processes at once, blah, 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 nerd, nerd stuff. (laughs) You also have to have a motherboard that can actually support that many freaking graphics cards too. Um, A lot of them don't use the 
a lot of the older boards don't use the processor's native controller. They use their own external controller. So then you're limited by the bandwidth that that controller has directly to the processor. So you're actually going like a side route back to processing again, which is another bottleneck that you'll end up running into. It, yeah. it happens too with gamers when they're, uh, you know, they're running these three card arrays and water cooling and stuff. At one card, you maximize your potential. At two cards, you're for games that utilize it, you're maximizing it. At three cards, you're showing off, mm-hmm. but you're not really gaining much out of it. And I think it kind of works the same way with uh, frame processing as well. Yeah, I, I think it does too. Although I'm excited. It sounds like um, with the new Haswell E, we'll be able to kind of bounce beyond that. Um, the other thing that, that PCs can do that's really exciting, and I'm sad that Mac doesn't do this, is have way more than 64 gigs of RAM. Oh, yeah. Like you can get an HP machine that has 500 gigs of RAM. That's, like, amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, firmware limits for the current board generations, like, one terabyte. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. You'd have to have some kind of, like, extender cards or something crazy like that because I don't know if you can buy Sims that high because, what, you have eight slots, so... What that's like two hundred fifty six. You'd have to have a special board. I mean, they make HP makes these kind of crazy boards for three D, you know, development guys yeah. that they can hold like ten video cards and have five hundred gigs of RAM. And yeah, I've uh, played but, around with them at NAB, but they're nothing if, within my price range of ownership. No, I know, but just the fact that they're there means that it's it's in it's in the lane for eventually you'll be able to afford it, you know, because that's kind of the you know, computers are like cars. The technology comes out in the the fancy Mercedes first and then eventually makes its way into the, you know, Volkswagen or something. Well, and I was at the uh, Adobe booth last year at NAB and um I walked up and he's like, "Look at this." And he opens up the the uh, diagnostics for the processor count. And it was 24 processors because they were running oh, uh, two, two six-core processors that had hyper-threading. So you're getting 12 and 12 total, so 24. And he's yes. like, look at this. He's like, we're rendering this 4K footage right now, and it's H- H.265. And we're barely like utilizing three-quarters of the CPU power that's available in this machine. And you're just like, oh, wow. When can I afford this $15,000 machine for my desktop editor? Yeah, that's, well, that's, it'll be a few years, but it'll come sooner than I think we all realize. But it's coming, and that's exciting. Um, <laughs> we sort of got off topic on oh, uh, yeah, Lightroom, but no, no, it's okay. I, Lightroom, yeah, I don't know if there's a lot to say about Lightroom other than it's cool and that right now there's not another option. Aperture, they're still selling, which I think is criminal because – No longer it, supported. It's Well, it's no longer supported, and if you install it, it's a 32-bit app, and it runs like garbage. Like, uh, everyone I know that runs it just complains like their cat's getting starved. Like, it's it's <laughs> so bad. Um, so, effectively, they're all but forcing you to buy uh, Lightroom at this point. They well, announced that there's a new app called Photos coming out, but they don't say when it's coming out. And it's supposed to replace iPhoto and Aperture. Is there really any uh, uh, valid Lightroom competitor? available anymore i mean is it just lightroom or the native um raw processing that's available with your camera's like stock disc or whatever um google makes this old app called picasa but i don't yeah i don't know if there is picasa i use that as a web-based option and it's fine as (laughs) long as you convert to dng files first but if Uh you're using um native raw files from a newer camera like uh, the 6D or the 5D Mark III you can run into some weird things where it just turns your image purple or you know well, or it just that, doesn't recognize it maybe there's a uh, there's a downloadable version maybe it's called Picasso but um 
uh, I think that I'll do a lot of that heavy lifting for you, but it's not, I mean, it's really limited in its functionality. If you're comparing it to Lightroom, it wouldn't be considered a professional tool with a lot of cool workflow tricks. Yeah. It's just basically like being able to open your files, look at the pictures, look at them and do a few like contrast and exposure yeah. checks or, or hit like uh, I feel lucky yeah. and then it'll do an <laughs> auto thing. Woo-hoo. It just yeah. added sepia tones to everything. That's great. <laughs> yeah, totally. All right. Uh, uh, yeah. Moving on here. Um, uh, 4kshooter.net has posted a video from Vimeo user Gallo Calcia. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, demonstrating the use of Adobe Camera Raw plugin with GH4's 4K video footage. Um, for the people that have shot on 5D Mark III's with uh, Magic Lantern installed, you're probably used to dealing with the Adobe Camera Raw for uh, DNG files to process those out before you bring them into your timeline. Uh, do you think you would really want to deal with the rendering times that it takes for Adobe Camera Raw to process 4K footage? No. <laughs> <laughs> Straight answer. No, absolutely not. I saw that. I watched that video, and I was just like, this it's cool. Ridiculous. Yeah, this looks cool, but I would only want to do this on one video. <laughs> like you have to go through and open up each individual video. And although, yes, you can apply it as a preset so that it's just a few clicks. There's no batch like do this to a whole folder. Maybe I'm wrong, but and then no, you're absolutely you, right. And it even and comes then, into that hassle of um, the, the old uh, shooting raw on a 5D Mark III, your DNG files, dealing with that many DNG files and then syncing your audio and doing all that crap. It's like going back three steps in filmmaking. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's really similar to the Blackmagic uh, workflow. Yeah, I have um, a lot of complaints about that. Um, yeah, but the, the, the benefit of DNGs um, is with Resolve, you can get hardware-accelerated um, rendering so so you can spit out at least you know maybe not 4k but um an hd you can spit out faster than real time so you can actually spit out frames at like 48 frames a second if you have a nice video card in there um if you're doing this this is going to take hours for a single clip you know what i'm saying like this is this would be set it and forget it for the weekend if you did like a simple interview well, and um, that's how uh, the original raw processing process was for a, a, quite a while. For until, Red, yeah. yeah. Until and, like Red Rocket and stuff, yeah. Yeah, well, and now I, I was just watching a demo and, um, last week or the week before while I was in California, and um, the Red processing, they were just doing that on a standard i7 processor and with a regular graphics card because they have CUDA acceleration enabled. So you don't even really need the Red Rocket anymore to handle Red code, which is pretty fantastic um computers have finally caught up with it um and maybe yeah, five this, years six years yeah, later maybe this will be a five or six year thing too like down the road we'll be like oh these raw dng files are nothing or oh using adobe camera raw to process you know our 4k footage it's nothing it'll take like five minutes well so there's some i mean yeah the, the workflow in terms of using a uh, camera raw is really clicky, you know, and if you have a lot of clips to get through, you're going to want more hotkeys. And, yeah. and there are some stuff that he was saying like, Oh, this is quicker. And it's like, it's just simpler. It's not actually quicker. I feel like well, you can um, script, um, uh, you can script Photoshop to run through a batch just like you would with uh-huh. uh, photos. So if you are smart and you have the time to sit down and do it, you write a script that says pull file, and then you have a count set up. Um, from folder and then do whatever you have set up and you can actually uh, there's a script writing utility for 
uh, Photoshop that allows you to just follow along with the clips and then increment. So you do it once, you hit enter, and then it'll just do it for everything in the folder. So there is actually a way to sort of um, assembly line this business, but if you're working with multiple clips and multiple exposure settings and everything else, is it going to be one brush paints everything? Probably no. not. Yeah, no, no. It's, uh, yeah, you'll learn that really quickly <laughs> that it that is not how video works. Exactly. I, mean, I don't even I don't even think that works with stills, but I feel like the only reason to do this is if you had an aversion to learning Resolve or another tool that was designed to do batches of video. Um and so, and you knew Photoshop really well, and you knew this one plugin. And so you wanted, you know, you knew exactly how to get the look you wanted that you know you want. And so this would be a good tool for you at that time because of your skill set. Otherwise, like if you're going to spend time to learn uh, Adobe Camera Raw, like you saw this, you're like, oh, I'm going to learn this tool. Yeah. I would say, don't spend the time on that. If you're video centric, download Resolve, it's free. And actually learn it. You can do everything he's talking about in Resolve. It's just called different stuff, and the tools are. It's just an entirely different tool. Well, but if it's designed he has a Adobe task. license, then he could also just download SpeedGrade, and SpeedGrade is set up in a pretty similar manner to Resolve for editing. So, I mean, if you've learned Resolve, you can usually get around fairly decently in SpeedGrade. That's true. I have used SpeedGrade, and you don't like it. I don't like it. The performance is really not there compared to Resolve, not even in the ballpark. And the hotkeys, it's when I open it up, I feel like I'm opening up an old Linux application. That's just how <laughs> what it looks like to me. And the, there isn't a good, I don't know where to learn all the hotkeys. There's no menu anywhere. Um, I, I don't, you have to go to Adobe's website to, uh, to get the list of hotkeys. It's the same with Premiere. Um, once you get used to using Premiere, you kind of learn, you know, Control V, well, Control C, and all that stuff. You can set your own hotkeys in Premiere. I mean, yeah, but I use the you default can do a ones. search. Yeah, I, I don't. Know. I have mine all. And then out I have weird. a keyboard um, that I magic marker or fingernail paint when I'm doing really complicated stuff, so that I don't forget where everything's at. I just look down and it's color coded. And for eleven dollars, they actually do sell a hotkey sheet that goes right over the top of any keyboard. Uh, you can pick them up on Amazon, and it's yeah. all the default keys for both um, uh, After Effects, Premiere, uh, Speed Grade, and I think they have one out now for Audition. So, because the uh, cuts and clip in imports and stuff for Audition are completely different for some reason than they are from all of the other Adobe products, which is another issue altogether. But uh, yeah. or if you do something like you're saying and create your own hotkeys, I mean that works as well. Yeah, I create my own hotkeys, and then the other thing I do is I put like little pieces of tape on the keys, so I don't have to look. I can just feel around for these different textures. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know if you can actually hear my keyboard here. Let me type something real quick. This, uh, you hear that nice, yeah. satisfying click? I have a whole closet full of IBM Model M keyboards. That's that awesome. I, that I type on because of the tactile feel of typing, and I know this is getting a little bit off track, but. Because you can wash the keys in basically um, a dishwasher, uh, I have one of them that's just markered up for that reason. So that yeah, yeah. if I'm going to just sit down and do nothing but editing for um, three or four days straight, like if I'm post-producing a, a feature length or something like that, uh, that's I grab that right away and just plug it in because it has that same um, L6 pin connector on the back. And then I have a L6 to USB adapter cable. And I actually just posted mm. about those. You can pick them up on um, on eBay. They're only like thirty bucks, 
I mean, I know that's expensive, but if you look at mechanical keyboards today, they're not made as good as the old ones, and no. they don't. You're saying the old keyboard you can pick up for thirty bucks? No, I have. A, I pick them up at the pawn shops whenever oh, I can, okay. or like I steal them from places that are throwing them away. Yeah, yeah. No, the keyboards. I, I believe the IBM Model M's. <laughs> they sell if they're cleaned up on eBay. They sell for like a hundred bucks. The, yeah, they make new sense. mechanical keyboards that are available. Um, uh, uh, C Corp, I believe, makes one. And theirs is a uh, $79 for the base model. Um, NVIDIA and MSI both have, like, they, they call them something crazy, like the Razor Blade or the Shooter Control or something like that. And they're mechanical keyboards as well. But it's because the technology for the Buckle Spring keyboards has lapsed in patent. So they're basically making, like, newer versions of those. But they're still not quite the same as the original Model M's. And I'm sorry, that's a complete like nerd side no, subject. I, I, just, I want one of these keyboards. I'm going to find this link. <laughs> yeah, and um, I, if you if you remind me after the after the yeah, cast, I'll send you, you send you the information on that. Um, and it, I'm sure, like if you work at any corporate office that's had computers for more than ten years, uh, Model M's they stopped manufacturing them in like '97, so they were still like pretty standard server and computer room application keyboards up until like the mid to late nineties. And a lot of times they get chucked in a, you know, a bin or something like that. And they're just sitting there waiting for you to clean them up and take them back over again. Yeah. I would have no idea where to find them at where I work because like at at the world headquarters where I'm at, there's like 10,000 people. It's like the size of Disneyland. Uh, So I would have no idea. I work in small offices. So, you know, a lot of times you show up and there's like 20 people working there and they just have a closet full of old computer stuff. And you're like, what are you doing with that? And they're like, oh, we're just going to throw it out. It's all a bunch of old junk. And you're like, you mind if I take this big giant keyboard that weighs five pounds? And they're like, yeah, we're just going to throw it out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing about those keyboards is that, yeah, the tactile experience of the keyboard, like you can really slam the keys down. It's gratifying. Oh, man. I only type on these because uh, it's like typing on a typewriter almost. I mean, it's as close to that as possible without going some weird you know, e-ink type writer weirdness that's kind of being brought up by the hipsters these days. All right. We are completely off track here. Let me bring us back to count. (laughs) Um, The last thing I've got on my regular list here is 4K displays. Um, Seiki, who is well known for making some really affordable 4K monitors, I'm talking like $250 to $300 range, uh, they had a whole bunch of those in 2014 that were 30 hertz. Now, 30 hertz isn't really a fast enough refresh rate for gaming or even for practical regular computing a lot of times. If you've ever moved a mouse across a 30 hertz panel, it feels pretty clunky. Uh, But they are going to start releasing uh, 60 hertz panels at 4K in 2015 in the first quarter. And they're expecting these to be sub $600, which is a pretty sexy price. And as opposed to being TN panels, which have that issue of viewing from an angle, these will be VA panels, which are pretty close to IPS technology. Uh, $600 4K panel, is that something that interests you? It's interesting. I um, Are you talking about just for day-to-day work or for watching TV stuff? Oh, for editing. Um, I wouldn't recommend any of these for television. Okay, yeah. I don't know, maybe. Um, you know, honestly, probably, probably not. I'd probably go for something that I could be assured was more color accurate. Um, but it is tempting. Like if I had to set up a bay of computers and I just need people to come in and sit down and edit, I might, I would, might look at these. Well, right now, uh, for color accuracy, I have a 2560 by 1440 panel. 
um, IPS display that's that I calibrate on a weekly basis. And then for just plain slugging through a bunch of footage and, and making cuts, I have a 4K Samsung panel upstairs. And the 4K Samsung panel, the benefit for me, at least, is that I can have a full 1080p window open in the corner and still have tons of workspace for everything else. Uh, I wouldn't grade on it, but for yeah. just cutting and editing a project, especially a big project, having a preview window and a display window that are 1080p on the same screen as all of your other tools, it, it's really been a, a nice change of pace for me as opposed to double monitoring. Yeah. You, did you see this link I put on the show notes here that um, it's more expensive than $500? Oh, is it? the LG. It's I don't know. It's, I have it under other monitors of note. The LG thirty four UM nine four thirty four inch. It's nine hundred dollars, but it is the width of two monitors. <clears throat> oh, this is that. Um, it's like a twenty one by whatever aspect ratio. Yeah, it's like crazy wide. Yeah, I haven't. An, I've seen those in use, but I have never actually used one. Are they comfortable? I mean, do you have to turn your head to know. look across? No, I don't. I doubt it. Like I work at work at my work right now. I have two 30 inch cinema displays Yeah, and that is a little too big, but I like the space and this feels like, I mean, I've only seen photos. My coworker got it. So I'd be able to report on it in a couple of weeks, but, um, uh, cause it hasn't arrived yet. Um, but this feels like the perfect size actually for video editing. Cause it's, it, you wouldn't want a color on it, but they're saying that it's definitely their competitor to the HP Dream Color series because they're saying it comes pre-calibrated. Its uh, contrast ratio is really amazing. It's like uh, one to, uh, five million to one. Yeah, um, and it's got two Thunderbolts on the back, two HDMI ports, USB threes. Uh, it's got the full gamut for both Windows and Mac users, and then it's like extra wide but not too tall. Yeah, um, uh, I'm, I'm looking at the resolution, 3440 by 1440. So it's like cinema-style 4K display, basically. Like if you were to uh, cinema mm-hmm. display 1080p, that would be the same ratio. I think that's 21 by 9. Am I incorrect in that? I think, I think it's 2 to 1 is what it's called. Oh, okay. But um, um, yeah, you know, that does look sexy, but $900 is a bit more pricey than uh, – that's true. So if you were, if like every dollar mattered, I think, um, and every dollar does matter. I mean, I mean, that's a dumb thing to say, but like if, if, if you were trying to stretch every dollar as far as it could go, I would say the display you're talking about earlier is probably a really good deal. Well, and the, the new Seiki monitors are reported to be like 96% uh, Adobe RGB accurate. That's pretty so, impressive. And, you know, for a monitor in that range, and they're VA monitors, so they're not quite IPS, but they're um, quite a bit above the old TN panels, so they do look pretty decent. And the issue I've been running into with my 4K panel is actually that it's 28 inches. So uh-huh. 28 inches at 4K, that's almost too small. Um uh- if if text doesn't recognize that I have like the handicap setup of one hundred and fifty percent, then it shows up so small that I have to get my glasses and like you put my nose up to the screen in order to read what it says. Right. I would almost prefer a a forty two inch size or like a thirty six inch size four yeah. K panel for that reason. And your your uh, uh, a 34 inch panel. I mean, that's starting to get into a size that's reasonable for the amount of resolution they're pushing. 
Yeah. Well, and just, just like, I mean, I want more space, you know, side to side than up and down. So uh, yeah. I mean, that's kind of what's more exciting to me because th- if you think about like, <clears throat> you know, in premiere, you have this, just, it's more, sometimes you just really just want a long timeline, you know, so you can kind of see the whole thing. Um, or maybe I'm dreaming. Yeah, I think uh, I don't know. That's not an issue for me. I I have the plus and minus keys under my finger all the time. That's true. Expanding no, or too. detracting the the. Sometimes um, I just want the whole timeline. You know, I just want I just want it all right there. <laughs> How big I of timelines know. are you talking about? Because uh, you know, on a feature length, <laughs> like I've two, had two, three minutes. <laughs> oh, well, that's plenty of room there. <laughs> are you kidding me? I know, but just the idea of having more room sounds cool. It's like I don't know. I don't know what it's like, but I, I just want a long ass monitor because if you have two monitors, like what I have now, then you have Premier will stretch across. Yep. So I, I can't actually do that. Well, and if I'm on the upstairs monitor, if I'm grading, I have a seven inch, um, uh, uh not Lily put, um, it's, uh, a DP, a DP seven. It's from, um, yeah. why is it escaping small, me? Small HD. Small HD. Thank you. Uh, it's a DP seven and that one's, Fairly color accurate. You can plug a um, spider into it to color calibrate it, which is pretty handy. And you can set that up on the side. Premiere recognizes it as a preview monitor, and it'll just stream all your clips directly to that. And 7 inches, it's a little small, but for a 1080p project and something cheap and easy that you can carry around with you, it isn't too bad. And it's color accurate, so it's well worth grading on, and it looks nice. Yeah. Um, I know that's uh, like a, a MacGyver way to do it. Like, it is a super MacGyver way to do it. And there's actually some technical issues wherein um, you you would want to send to your video signal to like a Blackmagic box that converts it to SDI so that you're standardizing your signal process yeah. because it, it mimics the way regular TVs are fed uh, because the computer uh, signal is quite different than a TV signal. Yeah. Blobity, blobity. Uh, one one thing though, I I wanted to know. I was listening to a Planet Money the other day, and they were interviewing Monoprice because they have a 4K display, and that they claim sexy. They claim that the the panel, the actual technology in the 4K display, is the exact same one in the Mac Pros or the Mac Cinema 4K display. Well, they're um, the panel I have right now in front of me, the twenty five sixty by fourteen forty. Uh, IPS display is the same one that was sold with the the, um, the Mac towers uh, last year or the year before, mm-hmm. and the panel is what's called an A minus, which means it didn't make the whatever technical spectra required oh, for cut, yeah. for Apple. But when Apple was selling it, it was a twelve hundred or thirteen hundred dollar monitor. Um, and the monoprice version that I have here, which I believe, uh, Shaman or Sheeman was the very first to make them. Um, theirs is the same panel, but it's completely no frills. So yeah. like crappy plastic bezel, a place <laughs> right. for speakers with no speakers, Who cares? one right. button, but I mean, it's a display. So you want Yeah. As long as I can hang a, a color calibration tool over it and make sure that it's accurate and then uh. I'm good to go. I don't really have to worry about that stuff. And I don't do as much like uh, I don't do hardly any straight to TV stuff unless I'm doing local commercial stuff. So I don't have to worry about, oh, you know, I should put a, uh, a spectrum analyzer on here and make sure that I'm not, you know, violating the amount of red I have in this image or, or what have you. So then it doesn't become an issue for me. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, monoprices there. I just checked their price and it's really similar to the, the, the 460. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. So. Uh, 
I think like computers, this is just going to be one of those things where it keeps getting better and keeps getting yeah. less expensive. For a while, I was recommending people invest in a good quality monitor, but it's almost like hold on and wait another six months or so until you see what comes out next because uh, things are dropping in price and that monitor may be two or $300 cheaper pretty shortly. Yeah. You know, so I don't know if you know the board Lift Gamma Gain, but it's, um, it's an online uh, messaging board for professional colorists. No, I don't use every, it. Every once in a while, I, you know, I comb it for information. Not that I'm a colorist, but I like to hear their opinions. And the one thing that I do, I did cull from their, their complaining is that 4K monitors um, today are like a step back in um, quality. Um, quality in terms of what HD monitors monitors are today. So in HD monitors, their contrast ratios have gotten really good, and their color spectrum and response has been has, has gotten really good to the point where, like you know, the HP Dream Color and the LG guy supposedly are competing with monitors that you know three or four years ago were you know, $30,000 in terms of their abilities. Well, the pixel refresh time on the TM panels is, is still comparable, but the VA panels, it's pretty slow. And some of the 4k panels that they're shoving into, um, laptops, like my GS 60 upstairs, uh, that, that laptop is maxed out at 48 Hertz refresh, uh, refresh rate because of the amount of time it takes to feed data to each one of those pixels. Um, so the only thing I, I have to say about that is though, is the 5,000 to one, um, you know, uh, black to light. If you start looking at that from an actual um, uh, contrast perspective, it it's kind of impossible, I think. Um, well, the human eye responds you know, like measuring more wise to, and, and the actual yeah. ability for the monitor to make that claim. I, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't know. I've read a couple studies that say like anything over you know one million to one is kind of like you know, questionable and this one's 5 million to one. So, yeah, well, I think, I mean, one thing is that, um, the human eye responds more to, um, um, contrast than it does to any other, um, part of the image. So compared to sharpness or color gamut. Yeah. So if you had a better contrast ratio, more accurate contrast representation and a, and a better color ratio, maybe at this point in time, that would be more important to you than just resolution alone, especially when it comes to viewing angles, you know, oh, the yeah. other elements of a, um, of an image that aren't just resolution. So if you have all the monies buy the best panel that money can buy, if you do yeah. not say key, maybe something to look at in the future. Well, if, if you have all the if, if you have all the monies and um, you're looking at you want to get the best quality uh, color grading monitor for the price, I put a link in here for Flanders Scientific makes a CM one seven one. It is two thousand five hundred dollars, but is it is actually um, calibrated and. Um, broadcast certified so if you're going to tv or even uh, if you're going to theaters it's a good place to start when you know um if you're going to theater supposedly you need to be you need to do your final grade pass in some form of a theater experience but you can do your basic grade on one of these monitors that's what everyone that's what um the people on lift gamma gain are 
are all about this. I work on mostly low budget horror films, so our stuff goes straight to DVD, and uh, never shall anybody complain about my color spectrum or anything else I do because. <laughs> well, and with I don't horror have any too, I think yeah, that's awesome. Um, with horror, though, I think you had the benefit of like if it's a little extra moody, that kind of works in your favor. <laughs> well, and sometimes too, um, especially if you're using rather uh, shifty practical effects. Uh, blood tubes and so on you sure. want a little bit less resolution and i've actually i know this is a big no-no and, and most people would tell me i'm bad for doing this but uh i will sometimes up res um a 1080p and crop in uh, to you know almost 720p and still kick out a 1080p file and uh, you know it's not a no-no I, well uh, I it's, do it all the time. it's just Honestly. um it, it works okay nobody seems to notice so then i guess it's I'm not messing up. It depends on how much you bump in, right? And how, how sharp the image needs to be. Like there's a general rule. Don't bump it, bump in more than 25 to 30%. Yeah. Um, but after effects has this awesome new plugin, which is like, um, uh, enhance, enhance scaling. What is that thing called? I don't know. Anyways. I is that in the latest, uh, 2014 CC then? Or? Yeah. Okay, yep, I haven't yep, messed yep. around with that yet. Um, it's, it's the new scale tool. Let me figure out new, whoops. I've been today. slogging through, um, a bunch of edits, so I haven't really had time to dive into all the new features for, uh, CC 2014. Uh, I, I've actually ended up becoming a subscriber though. Um, with my old purchased version, I was able to get a subscription for, uh, $300 or $260 a year, something like that. And so it ends up being like eighteen or nineteen dollars a month, which oh yeah. yeah, I wouldn't be able to live without it. So I don't yeah. know what. And like I, I, I wouldn't complain because I it, it is my job to yeah. work in these apps. So I don't know what to. <laughs> well, I know a lot of people. Um, you know, they either don't want to pay for it or they complain about the price. One thing I recommend uh, to any of our our poorer listeners is um, if you have a friend that's a student a teacher or anybody who can get an educational license, uh, those are 17 or $16 a month and uh, you can stack them. So you can buy two or three years worth of those and it'll just extend out your Adobe license subscription for that long. So if you have like a girlfriend that's in college for a year, you know, buy two or three copies of that for $200 a pop. And then you have three or four years worth of Adobe subscription saved up in, in the bank until you meet someone else who's going to college. So I figured out the name of the plugin and it's in after effects. It's called detail preserving upscale. And I have personally upscaled with this plugin SD to HD and it totally passes. What? Yeah, it's insane. I cannot believe how good this thing is and how few people know about it. Huh. Yeah, I haven't heard uh, heard about it yet, but um I haven't really Dude, investigated. That slick. sounds really sexy. So if you like if you need to push HD, um yeah, this thing can totally save your butt. Wow. Oh. Anyways, exciting. Yes. Okay, moving on since we're pushing almost an hour here. Um, oh, okay. We have a few discussion topics to hit real quick, and I'll just okay. pick, cherry pick a couple of them. Uh, rumors of a GH5 coming out at NAB, uh, <clears throat> possible 8K and 60 frames per second 4K internal recording. What do you think? I doubt it this early out of the gate. The GH4 just started selling, and... Well, to support the rumor, um, GH4 prices have plummeted in the last month and a half. Uh, They went from like $1,600 and sold out everywhere to now they're on sale on Amazon and B&H for uh, $1,399. 
and it uh, could just you could buy be a used pan- for like a thousand. It could be just Panasonic, um, you know, seeing that sales were were going down, so they're trying to keep it high. But I don't, I don't well, know. The that new would range be- of uh, two dots. Uh, H.265 processors are starting to hit the market, and uh, the um, ICs are pretty cheap. Uh, It only costs an extra like $30 or $40 to add it to your design. So, Mm. And those will push 8K and 4K at high frame rates. Mm. And in fact, you have Samsung's um, – I don't remember what the model number is, but Samsung just released a a little pocket cam. N1 thing? Oh, the pocket cam? I don't know. It might be the N1. I don't don't remember. But um, that one's using the H.265 codec. And yeah. and 4K and so you're talking like a 30 or 40 percent data size savings in your 4K recording. Yeah, no, I, I I hope that that becomes more of a standard. I would be surprised at 8K, honestly, but maybe they'd come out with a GH5 that's 4K with H.265 and well the 422 uh, sampling. H.265 can support 422 sampling, so I don't yeah. I don't know why everyone's. It feels like the whole industry is opposed to giving anyone under three thousand dollars four two two. You know, it just yeah. feels like they are all lockstep, and uh, maybe it's something I don't know about the codec. Well, but. it it could be a, a licensing issue too. Um, MPEG maybe. still licenses licenses out a lot of that stuff, and they do put restrictions and limitations on consumer versus pro products. Oh, that might be it, actually. Um, I, you know, I don't know if that applies to the GH4 or not, and it may also be regional depending on where you're in what country. Maybe right? that's why Blackmagic can do 10-bit 422 because they're not doing anything H.264 related. Yeah, exactly. And since they're not using the MPEG uh, uh, standard formats, then they can get away with that sort of thing, whereas the others can't. Oh, I bet you're right, man. I bet you are right. I, you know, I used to be a huge Kodak nerd back in the day. So like yeah. I was always reading the IEEE pages when they would release new Kodak standards and stuff. The issue though with two, uh, uh, H.265 is actually on the end user side though. Um, this is going to be kind of equivalent to the H.264, uh, early days back in, you know, um, 2004, 2003, where, People at home, even with quad-core processors, didn't have enough horsepower under the hood to process H.264 natively. They had to transcode into something else. Yeah. And H.265 could end up being the same issue where, you know, you're going to end up having to transcode it into something else in order to work with it because you'll only be able to do like half or quarter time uh, playback in Mm. a regular tower and processes, you know, aren't that big yet, so... Yeah, that'll be interesting because that would definitely void the the benefit of H.265. I mean, the benefit of H.264 in today's world is that it can it can now live throughout the whole pipeline and really save you on on data rate and and space, which is can be really awesome. Yeah, definitely. Um, so if you have to convert it again, I mean, there are, there will be benefits to being able to just record longer times and higher frame. Uh, um, I mean, 8K. I tell you what, the GH4 right now in my market, it, it reigns supreme when it comes to drone shots. Yeah. Because uh, the drone to rent a drone that can fly a GH4 is way cheaper than one that can fly a red or a blobity blobity. Because of the weight. Because of the weight. And the and the battery lasts forever, so it doesn't have to come down and get fiddled with every time. Because every time you touch the darn drone, it feels like you've you've put it off balance again and 
kind of a pain right now. Well, They're really the, fiddly. The size for the GH4 is a super excellent benefit. I was just doing a bunch of, of work for the hatcheries and uh, the dams in California, and I had to truck up and down stairs. I had to climb into, like, backwoods uh, hatchery buildings and stuff like that. And I didn't want to carry a big, giant rig with me, so I ended up packing, like, three lenses, the GH4, and some audio equipment. And that was more than enough to get everything I needed. And, yeah. you know, it's so light and so easy to carry. I didn't need to pay someone else to come with me. And, I, you know, I know that that sucks for whoever would have got the money from me. But uh, at the same time, that's more money in my pocket for working. So, Well, and for drone stuff, 8K gives you that much more ability to zoom in, which makes drones safer because you don't have to fly it as close to your subject. That's you true. Know? I've seen a couple so. people crash uh, really expensive drones because they didn't realize how wide an angle of lens they had on their camera and right. <laughs> ended up getting too close and chucking some blades. Yeah. So that that's the one thing that the AK would be really handy for on a GH five, I feel like, but ultimately I feel like if, if they came up with a GH five, eight K it's got to have one more feature, uh, because I don't feel like it'd be, enough uh, enough for people to run, want to run out and buy it it would just decrease the cost of the gh4 and the gh4 becomes just way more like i don't actually own a gh4 but if it if it breached a thousand dollars or just right at a thousand dollars new i'd probably just buy it yeah the, <laughs> it is a slick camera the gh4 for me was i don't want to say impulse buy but um I, you know i have uh, i had three 5d mark threes that i was using regularly and then a c100 and a c300 well i sold both the c100 and 300 off and a 5d mark three and then i just bought an entire set of lenses for the gh4 as well uh-huh. as the gh4 and you know the whole kit combined it was it was spendy but it all together was less than the c100 so yeah. And now they have the C100 too, and what does it have to offer? Uh, you know, almost nothing different than the C100 original. Um, the C1, yeah, I know. Uh, the C, the C, the C100 two should have been the C101. I mean, yeah. that, uh, basically, what they offer now is 60 frames a second. And it's like, but you've been doing that in your DSLRs for like five years, guys. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, that's a that's another dead another horse. Completely rat hole. I um, mean, the, the thing that the Canons have over the the Panasonic's is their full color frame. science. Well, full frame, but the color science is also, I think a little better than the Panasonic's, um, you know, just right out of the camera. I feel like the Canon's, uh, you know, at least the C 100s, 300 series, they look good. They look, you know, the skin you know, tones. Are really I'm nice. actually, I'm, and I'm probably the only, only one, but I really hated my C 100 and C 300. Um, really? Yeah. Grainy junk footage i had to do black uh that black calibration all the time had all kinds of issues when i was going out of, in and out of hot and cold temperatures with wow. shifting and and doing all kinds of weird stuff and again you know maybe i'm like unlucky and got a really bad setup but i was expecting a lot more out of the c100 especially and uh didn't really see it at all and for all the yeah. hype and stuff people are like oh man this is gonna be great it'll change the way you work no, it actually just made things more of a headache, and I ended up having to like do noise reduction and a bunch of other stuff in order to fix it in post. Hey, I have a question for you as a GH4 user. Have you tried that speed booster thing? Yeah, I have a Metabones um, speed, speed adapter. Uh, you don't have any um, uh, focus control 
as far as autofocus goes, but you have full manual control of focus and otherwise it's fairly Iris decent as well. Yeah. Um, all full control of the lens, but it's all just manual. So yeah. you have to like adjust your iris from right, right. the roller on your camera and stuff. Uh, but the nice thing is, is um, a Canon 50 millimeter F1.4 and an 85 millimeter F1.8, they're pretty tiny, light little lenses. And yeah. on the speed booster, that's giving you like an F1.2 and an F1.4 respectively. Yeah. It might be more than that. You know, my numbers might be off. And then your crop factor is like a 1.7. 1. 1. So you put those this on there and you're mm-hmm. looking at like Super 35 basically. And they're cheap lenses and they give you a really good view. And then because you're basically magnifying, you're, you're taking a big image and, and shrinking it down, you're ending, you end up getting better uh uh, image resolution from the lens and better picture quality from the lens. Uh, huh. The only issue I run into is um, it's a little bit more susceptible to like lens flare and to, um, uh, you know, uh, light contamination. If you have like a really bright light from the side, it can kind of yeah. like wash everything out. But, you know, that's what you have a lens hood for. And, yeah. and you know, pay it's attention also- to where you're pointing it. So that's a one more thing to fail on you, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, the the only issue I've run into so far is that the adapter going onto the camera is a little bit wiggly compared to going yeah. onto the lens. So it's a nice and solid connection between the Canon lens and the Metabones adapter, but the Metabones adapter to the GH4 is sloppy. It like wiggles a little bit. So yeah. well, not- I've used so I've used several of the Metabones adapters because of the FS seven hundred. Yeah. I've not used Speed Booster, but I can tell you that I feel like that's just a quality control issue with them. And I've had that I've had that with the lens side, and then I've had that with the mount side really? to the camera, and it, it doesn't seem to be consistent. So you might you might actually just call them and tell them, tell like, them hey, you got it's a bad loose. product. Can I get a different yeah. one? Yeah, yeah. I've I've I have a couple of, of other adapters. Um, I have one that. Uh, uh, is for my Sony A7S as well. And that one is solid on both sides, and I haven't had any issue with that. It doesn't have the speed booster portion, of course, because that's right. a full-frame camera. But it was nice and solid. This one's just loose on the camera side. But for the most part, I'm using the little um, adapter portion off of the speed booster anyhow. So as long as I don't fiddle around with the camera and shake it too much, it doesn't cause any problems in filming. Yeah. Um Yeah. I don't know. Um, I feel like what's cool about the GH4 is that uh, the, everything can be small. Like even the oh yeah, it's tiny. Even man. the the Luminex lens, Lumina, yeah, the lens, the Panasonic lenses, and those lenses look good. I'm I'm surprised sometimes. Yeah, some of the I have I a set of uh, of the Voigtlander lenses for it. Um, oh yeah, the uh, 17.5 millimeter f 0.95 <laughs> and the 25 millimeter, and both of those they look really nice and. I mean, it's not quite as shallow depth of field as you'd get with a full frame, but if I'm just shooting talking heads, it's more than enough to knock the background oh. out and make things look really nice. Yeah. The only issue I'm I'm kind of finding with my 17.5 millimeter is that uh, there's a little bit of slop in it, actually, when you're focusing. You go one oh. direction and you're fine, but as soon as you change direction and go back, um, it actually, like, there's a little bit of a dead spot before it catches and goes the other direction. And for a 12 i think it's 1400 dollars retail i think i might have paid like 1200 for it and got it on sale but uh that seems kind of i don't know disappointing for a lens of 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 that caliber that's a manual focus only 
and I know it's not a cinema lens, but still, you know, my 25 millimeter version is nice and smooth all the way across. And right. I've worked with the 40 millimeter F2.8 pancake and it was the same way, like well-designed and everything. So I don't know if I just got a bad copy or what the deal is. Uh, yeah, I don't, I mean, that might be QA as well. That's, I mean, that's one of the things with still lenses is they don't have as good QA, but you're, you're saving so much money. Yeah. That's, uh. I don't know. Well, it's a, it's I used to things. have to rent a set of lenses every time I wanted to go out and shoot something. Now I own an entire set. And, you know, with the GH4, I didn't even really. It's I in mean, a backpack, yeah. Yeah, I didn't really um, have to think very hard to just go pick up an entire set, you know. Getting every one of their primes from top to bottom is, you know, 2400 bucks, maybe $2,000. And that's really pretty affordable. And then adding two Voigtlanders to that, you're at 4000 That's still pretty cheap for, you know, seven, eight-plus lenses. Yeah. No, that is cheap. And and it's, and you can still do some pretty good-looking stuff. I mean, I get – so I just feel like the GH4 is a different kind of look. Like I, I hear people complaining it's not full frame, and, and it does look differently, but it's not a bad look. It's just a different look, you know? Like the difference between 16-millimeter and 35-millimeter, it, it just – it looks different. I don't know if it's just an aesthetic choice, I guess. Well, you know, I've heard people say it it's, looks different, but I've been comparing the uh, the 7 to 14 millimeter, which is the ultra wide, uh, against the uh, 16 to 35 millimeter on my Canon camera. And you set them side by side and take a, a respectively similar image at a wide angle, and you can't really... You know, unless you know which one's which and you're you're getting a, a 1080p window out of it, you don't really know which one is which. I mean, there are some color issues. If uh, With the Panasonic, I find myself having to tweak it a little bit more than I do with Canon in post. But other than that, you know, you can get the same field of view and perspective out of it yeah. if you have the proper lens to go along with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think wide angle is a little more forgiving than the longer lenses. But yeah, I agree with you. I think, <clears throat> you know, people can, I don't know, the internet can be an echo chamber, right? So yeah. some loudmouth starts complaining about and it's not full frame and then everyone's complaining about it's not full frame. Well, and, and if you need I a... like full frame, especially in small spaces, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. like if you're trying to do an interview in, in a corporate setting in like a stupid uh, conference room, you're just, you're just wishing you had as much space as you get and the full frame really buys you a lot more. Yeah, that's true. Um, well, and you find yourself a lot too with the GH4. If you need to really knock out the background, you end up going with like the 35 to 100 millimeter and like being a distance away from your subject so that you can really get that like shallow depth of field out of that, uh, longer lens. And, yeah. and I mean, that doesn't work if you're, you know, in a small area where you don't have a lot of space, but if you're running around outside, it's like, Oh, here, let me back up really quick. You got a wireless mic on. It's not that big a deal, you know? Yeah. And so I, I guess it kind of depends, and you're right, shooting in a tiny area, the 5D Mark III, man, you know, I can be, you know, five or six inches away from my subject sometimes and still, like, get what I need out of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, maybe that's the 20, trade-off. 24 millimeters is almost too wide on a 5D. I almost never shoot that wide, you know? Yeah. It's uh, it's a different, yeah. It's just a different. I think some of it's the different math involved too. Like you need to think about your the how wide of a lens you need differently. I cheat uh, honestly. I have a, a calculator on my phone that uh, goes through and and tells me depth of field and distances and everything, so that I can kind of look at that really quick and then choose my lenses from there. 
Um, yeah. But generally, if I'm wandering around like the hatcheries where I was shooting, I wasn't even shooting, you know, much shallow depth in the field. Most of it is like F5.6 or above. So, you know, I want stuff to be in focus. I'm not trying to knock the background out. I want to like show these demonstrations as they're going on, as they beat the fish over the heads and, you know, throw them into buckets and stuff like that. And so I, I don't really like I wasn't missing out on anything. And that is the benefit for the GH4 is, you know, even at F1.8, you still have a pretty decent amount of focus because that's, I think, I want to say it's equivalent to like almost F4 on a full frame. I might be wrong. It's not quite double, but it's like 2.31 or something like that. I don't actually know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess it's horses for courses, right? So yeah. it's like, you know, what are you doing? What What are the benefits of each tool? Um yeah. All right. We've uh, dove down into this pretty far. One last yeah. thing on my list before we call it a day. Um, okay. I've got the ice or the Canon 7D Mark II. Uh, the only upgrades you get is uh, 20 megapixel versus 18. You get the 5D Mark III's focusing system. You get some more memory card options, GPS, and then 10 frames a second. Yes Dang. or no? No, no, it's so lame. <laughs> like, I really liked Canon for a long time, but this is so. Like how long has the seventy been out? Five years. Five years, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's almost had as long a run as the five D Mark II. And it's they upgraded the the focus system to a five D Mark system, III, which they've had for which yeah, was, yeah, five it was years. in the one one D four, I believe, before for, it was in the five D Mark III. And for video, you're not even really using the autofocus system. So yeah, the AF system is not. You good. get 60 frames a second, 1080. That's the other thing you get. Yeah, uh, but there's so many other cameras offering that right now that it doesn't really make the 7D stand out at all. No, and it's a eight, no, it it's a eighteen hundred dollar body now um, retail. And if which you're is more expensive than it was when it was just a 5D Mark One new. Yep. Which is the camera I originally bought. Um, which I really like the 7D. But did they? I mean, the other thing they didn't answer is: Are you allowed to roll video for 30 minutes? Or, uh, yes, they did fix the um, the video option. It has the same video recording codecs and times as the 5D Mark Three. So uh-huh. that has been corrected. Um, the only reason I could see someone buying the Canon 7D Mark II is actually if you're doing sports photography or you're doing like wildlife because you get the extra reach out of your lens because of the 1.6 crop. And then on top of that, you also have the 10 frames per second for JPEG and RAW, which if you're doing sports, you know, a lot of times you're just holding down the trigger and going and the same (laughs) with, you know, like, oh, there's a rare bird up in this tree. You have an ultra wide or an ultra long lens on there and you're in close and you're just holding the trigger down, hoping that you get that perfect shot of it flying in the air or doing something fancy. But otherwise, it's not uh, really very attractive. Arguably, arguably, you could get a hold of the 1D uh, Mark III or whatever um, used for maybe less and you'd get... Well, even the 1D uh, Mark IV, because a lot of people complained about the control of the focus system, those run like 2,000 to 2,500. Okay. Yeah, so the Mark IV isn't even that far back, and it's got the same focusing system as the now 7D Mark II and 5D Mark III. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess if you, yeah, if you needed that, I guess the benefit there is if you needed that extra still, like a faster uh, frame rate on a still scenario then i guess this camera looks good to you but otherwise there's really no like as a 70 mark one owner i don't i don't care about two extra megapixels for video it's actually worse it's going to make the moray worse um yeah that's true 
the autofocus system, honestly, as a Mark One owner, I think the autofocus system is pretty good for stills. I, I, I mean, I like it as a family shooter. I shoot my kid with it, um, and even in low light, like it kicks butt. I have the Mark, I have the GH3, and in low light, the 70 I feel like does better. Yeah, it in does. terms of pulling fast focus and blah blah but it's also a big camera, so that. I feel like when I go out to a park and I'm shooting photos of my, my little girl with a big 7D and a big lens on it, I feel like such a creeper. I don't know why. <laughs> I, you <laughs> know, like, I've never had the creeper feeling, but you do feel like but, you're like going a little bit overboard taking I pictures of your kids. I definitely stick out. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. But on the, on the Mark or the GH3, I just seem like, you know, I'm just a nerdy dad with a well, pretty good looking camera. Not like a big professional looking camera with a several thousand dollar lens on the front of it. Well, <laughs> Well, I was working um, in Eureka, California for a little while, and when I would walk around with my 5D Mark III with a red stripe on it, people would look and, you know, other photographers yeah. would be like, hey, what are you shooting on? You know, what do you, yeah. what project are you working on? But when I was walking around with my GH4, no one gave a crap. That, you know, they didn't even pay attention to me. I, I got uh, I got asked by security to leave a couple times with a 5D Mark III because they're like, are you filming in here? It says no filming. But I had my GH4 with me, and I switched over to that, and they're like, oh, he's just taking pictures. What a silly yeah. guy. You know, like, didn't bother me or anything. It's like the new Way gorilla. Way less assuming. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the other social element to having the smaller cameras that um, you can steal more shots, which is awesome. Well, and people are catching on to now that uh, full-size DSLRs are being used for video recording. In the early days, like no one would run me off when I was running around with my 5D Mark II in an area that I should arguably have a license to be filming in. Um, But now they have signs up and they have people walking around that recognize what you're up to and like get you out of there as soon as possible. So uh, the GH4 may be the next move for people trying to like sneak in and film something on the sly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Last thing before we wrap it up, uh, pick of the week. All right. Well, uh, I saw pick of the week and I didn't really have a good pick of the week. So I had a trick of the week. Is that good? Yeah, that works. <laughs> okay. Well, I have this little app that I use sometimes in a pinch called level later. It's a free application that runs, I think on both windows, Mac and Linux, um, that effectively it's, it was designed to be magic sauce for podcasters. Yeah. You just run a wave file through level later and then it spits out another wave file with all the human voice um you know it's like normalized and it runs a gate on it to keep all the background noise out and does all the limiting and stuff yeah and so sometimes um if i'm in a pinch or in a super hurry or it's a new client and i don't and it's a rough cut and i don't want them to be like why is the sound all all the play all over the place i'll just spit it out throw it through love later and throw it back it's so quick um and it makes the audio very listenable human voice audio Huh, levelator. Okay, is is that on both uh, Mac or well, <laughs> iPhone and Android devices, or is that just iPhone? No, 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 no. It's it's a computer uh, application. Oh, okay, okay. So it's just yeah, it's Windows, Mac, and Linux, and it's like I think it was someone's thesis project for you know computer science or something. Huh. And so it's uh, just an application, and when you open it up, it's just a window that shows up, and you drag your vi- your audio file to the window, and it just does its thing and drops a new file next to the old file called um, you know file name output, um, and it's levelated. I will add this to my bookmarks. Now, in the future, we'll probably be releasing show notes with the podcast. So 
uh, with that in mind, um, when the behind the scenes stuff that we're editing and like looking at to go through this will be available for everybody to kind of glance over so they can find the links and so on and so forth. Uh, my pick of the week is the, actually the Verivon GH4 cage. Well, I had to do some sanding on it and um, some other minor modifications for $260. It really adds a lot of connecting points and usability functionality to the GH4. And being huh. able to mount a 3XLR juice link unit onto the top handle and then run audio directly into the camera really makes it nice and easy if you're just running around with, say, two lav mics on a wireless, like... Uh, um, Sennheiser setup or something like that. Or if you have a boom mic with a wireless setup, uh, you can run your audio right into there from your wireless transmitters. So my pick, uh, Veravon GH4 Cage. You can find quick, more of that on DSLRFilmNoob.com. Quick question, quick question for you. How long does the battery last in the Juice Link? Uh, the Juice Link is uh, about seven or eight hours. Uh, most almost all day, I guess. Then, huh? yeah, okay. you know, I haven't I haven't had a uh, reason to change it out unless I'm running phantom power in a single day worth of shooting. Um, if you're running fan, phantom power on both channels and you're using 48 volt instead of 24 volt, uh, you can eat through batteries, you know, a single nine volt in about a half a day to three quarters of a day. But if you're just using it to mix down uh, two or three wireless channels and bring them in, uh, you don't really need to change the battery out in a day or even two days sometimes. So. Oh, sweet. Cool. Yeah. Um, one note, though, the Beach Tech units, they do go through batteries in about four and a half hours. Um, I have two Beach Tech units as well as the Juice Links, and the Beach Techs eat through the batteries, but they also have the bigger knobs, so it's easier to ride your faders. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. All right. Uh, where cool. can people find out more about you? Uh, I don't really uh, don't have, have like any online Twitter, presence. G plus? I don't. Really? Oh, uh, I guess. Oh, well, yeah. Dusty McCord at uh, Google Plus. Um, I am there. I don't really do a lot of social stuff anymore. So, 